Welcome to Femme on Creatives, part of the Femme on Collective. I'm Tanya Todd, and I am honored to share today's guest with you. I met Veronica Wasson at a fruit bowl storytelling event in Seattle called Passion Fruit, a night of fun, frisky, femme-centered entertainment, which is pretty much our kind of party here on Femme on. Veronica and I were introduced by a mutual friend, Brandon Mead, who's a fantastic writer in his own right. And we all spent the evening bonding over beautiful queer stories. Welcome, Veronica. Please introduce yourself and tell listeners a bit about your creative journey. Yeah, um, I'm Veronica. My last name's actually Veronica Wasson. Is how Wasson, it's... okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm based up in the Seattle area. Um, by day, I'm a tech writer, but the rest of the time, I'm a, I'm a creative fiction writer. Um, and I guess, I mean, I've, I, I, I've, I've written, you know, for myself um, ever since I was young that I can remember. Um, and I used to, as a writer, I think I used to try to explore genre fiction more because I sort of thought like that's how one writes or something. But at the same time, mostly what I was reading was literary fiction. And I think at some point I sort of, I don't know, in a way got the courage to try to write more literary um, and then sort of drifting up even into more sort of experimental literary writing. Um, I think as I've gotten older too, I'm like much less concerned about does that have an audience or not. Um, because you're your audience. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And if and if it has a very small potential audience, that's actually okay because it's what I am most passionate about. Um, and I'd say over the last maybe four to five years is sort of when I really became like, took it seriously for myself as a, as a thing that I sort of see myself as, as, you know, being a writer. <laughs> so what kind of stories do you like to tell? Yeah. I, t as I, I mean, as I mentioned, I, I'm drawn to experimental fiction. So things that tend to be non-narrative um, and or non-linear, they sometimes have, um, you know, narrative stretches in them, but they're not designed to tell a coherent story that starts and has a, a middle and an end. I guess I'm sort of, I'm not particularly interested in character arcs or, you know, plots in the sense of like, <laughs> I mean, as a reader, I am, but like as a writer, um, uh, yeah, stories where a character confronts a challenge and overcomes it and grows as a result I'm more I think I'm more interested in exploring language and using language to explore subjective states of mind really um, yeah and I've been really interested lately in this idea I guess a couple of things one is in an idea of uh, like the simultaneity of memory that uh, traditional fiction is is much more about sort of getting from a point A to a point B. And I feel like, at least in my life, like all my memories of my past are always present with me. So I don't know. I'm not saying time is an illusion or something, but I'm sort of <laughs> maybe that idea in fiction. Um, and just in terms of just pure language, I'm very interested, I guess, in uh, sort of multitude of registers and a multitude of voices so sometimes lyrical sometimes awkward and ungainly I'm very interested lately in um, awkward sentences 
interesting. Um, yeah, so those are, I think, my current obsessions. So what are, what's your writing process? Do you sit down with something in mind? Do you write when the muse strikes? Do you just sit down every day, period? I I don't have a... I don't have a writing habit. I was going to say I don't have a good writing habit, but one one thing I've learned lately is that is that that doesn't actually work for me. I know there's writers who sit down and you know write. They're like, I'm going to write for three hours every day, or even you know I'm going to write for an hour a day or something. I can't seem to do that. What I seem to need is I seem to need a block of time, preferably late at night when there's nothing else happening. And I always feel like nighttime is sort of this slightly different space than daytime where I can I can sort of it's almost a mystical I'm not a very mystical person but it's almost a mystical experience of where I sort of switch into a different mindset it can be trance-like can't it trance-like that's exactly right yeah and then words can come out so um I think it's for me it's a little more at the beginning at least of a piece it's more automatic writing or almost a surrealist practice of just sort of seeing what comes out onto the page. So sort of the less I, I can never think of. I, that's when I used to try to write genre fiction, I'd think like, I need to come up with a story and then I'll write it. <laughs> I think for me, writing is much more of an act than a, than a mental process almost in a way. It's a, almost a physical act of just, I just- So write. you're not a plotter. <laughs> Not a plotter, but I'm also not like, oh, I want to write about this theme or just a blank page actually is almost sort of my friend because then it's a struggle, but something will just come out that I don't know where it came from. Yeah. It means I surprise myself when I, when I write. I also sometimes, because the blank page is sort of intimidating, I do sort of self-imposed literary games where I'll start with a sentence from another book or something just to have that's interesting yeah I I stumbled on um, there's one I do for myself sometimes where <laughs> I go to Project Gutenberg where they have all the open source books and yes I'll, I'll pick a book that's written in a language I don't read like French or something yeah and I'll pick or I should say we <laughs> yes yeah, so I'll, I'll do this I, I tend to use like Colette or somebody else and I'll just go through and I'll pick a language in French that I don't understand and I'll, I'll plug it into like Google Translate or something. And that's my first sentence because that's always a surprise. Like, that you know, is a really cool writing prompt. Yeah. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But yeah. So what are your thoughts on hot versus cool writing? Right. I, yeah. I, I mentioned that to you. And I, I came up with this. Um, this is a very vague distinction in my mind, but I came up with this when I was taking a writing workshop and I was reading somebody's work and I was so kind of turned on by it. And my just my thought reading this person's writing, their writing was um, that they wrote very hot and I feel like I write a little bit cool. And to me, like hot writing is sort of like messy and very intense and almost like no filter in a way mm. um, and very emotionally heightened. Um, and I think my writing tends to be a little more um, pulled back a little bit, um, that I tend to be a little distant from my own. Reserved maybe? A little reserved, yeah. A little bit more mask-like, I think. <laughs> this, this relates to my thing about being interested in different 
tones and registers. Often, I think I'm very aware of like writing as a writer and that it's a literary output, I guess. Um, and that the voices I'm using when I'm writing are not necessarily mine. So that sort of like slight distance from the page I think of as being cool. Again, this is just a distinction I made up, but um, because I admire the types of writing that I think of as hot writing, I very much admire, but I don't, I don't feel that I write that way myself. Well, who are some of your literary influences? Yeah. Um, so as what, a, what draws I mean, you to them? Yeah. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of writers that I like as a reader. But as a writer, um, one of it, my... It is different, isn't it? A little bit different, yeah. <laughs> well, like I was talking about experimental fiction versus... There's lots of very narrative sort of straight-ahead writers that I really, that I really like. Um, um, you know, like I wish I could be Jane Austen, but I can't do that. <laughs> I, just can't, I can't, right? I just, for whatever reason, I can't. So in terms of like what's influenced my writing, um, I think first and foremost, Kathy Acker. I started reading in the 80s when she was still alive and still producing work. Um, but she has been a huge influence on my writing. I think of her sort of as a hot writer, to use my made-up distinction. Um, <laughs> but one thing about Kathy Acker that I just love um, is really just how ugly her prose could be. <laughs> and it's to me, it's, I know that sounds weird, right? But to me, it's ugly in a way that is is intentional that it couldn't you couldn't accidentally write as ugly as she so intentionally ugly yeah i feel like i mean there's prose that's clunky or whatever where i feel like but then i feel like that type of writing tends to be cliched or hackneyed or because people kind of unconsciously imitate all the other right and then they didn't polish it or have anyone else read it yeah so there's sort of that thing but kathy agra is totally different like kathy agra like the the, just the raw, brutal kind of, it's just this like thudding. It's just like bum, 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 bum. And, you know, it's kind of just like being hit with a hammer or something over and over again. It's very interesting. It's very kind of brutal. And her subject matter is very brutal. Well, in Not our correspondence, you you specifically mentioned Gertrude Stein's The Making of Americans. Yeah. So what is it about that novel that resonates okay, so, with you? Okay, yeah, so Making of Americans, I have not read a lot of Gertrude's, well, I haven't read many of Gertrude Stein's books, um, but Making of Americans is about a thousand pages, so I guess I've read a lot of Gertrude Stein's books. <laughs> yeah, but it's all that, relative, right? <laughs> only that one book, really. Um, that book is interesting because it's super repetitive, and it uses a very limited vocabulary. And she builds up these sentences that have that are very weird, and they have more and more dependent clauses. And they just, it's almost as if she can't say anything in a straightforward way. I mean, to give you sort of an idea of the book, a lot of it concerns the difference between people whose bottom natures are dependent independence versus those who have independent dependence. It's very strange. And she can go on for pages and pages and pages. And she builds up these sentences that they start relatively small. And then the next one will be longer variation on that. And the next one will be longer variation on that. Um, but again, it's intentional, right? It's very intentional. And I think that quality of her voice, um, it's rhythmic and repetitive and um, awkward. That was what I was saying about sort of this 
these awkward sentences. Um, they're not, it's not what you think of as being like lyrical or poetic. Um, and again, this very reduced vocabulary. <laughs> I was reading an essay about that book where the person said, um, when Gertrude Stein introduces a new word into the prose, it's like this momentous event because her vocabulary <laughs> is so restricted. I don't, and I don't really exactly write like that, but I've been influenced, I think, by her sort of strange cadences. Yeah. Yeah. So who else? Who else? Um, uh, Beckett, um, Samuel Beckett, the Beckett of the novels more than the plays. Um, I think there it's, um, I just like Beckett's kind of minimalism. Um, and I guess, again, he too had this, these sort of cadences of these very, again, the op sort of the opposite of Joyce, where Joyce was like every word imaginable, but Beckett is more like, I will only use these five words <laughs> use them in every possible combination until I've exhausted that. And then maybe I'll add. A it's a good exercise. Yeah. Um, it's kind of stripping bare of stuff. I tend to be not such a minimalist, but I'm I do I'm influenced by that, I think. Um other another big influence of mine is Clarice Lispector, the Brazilian Portuguese author, um, who wrote uh very experimental works, tend to be very non-narrative. Um sometimes there's sort of a shell of a narrative, but her action is all very um, interior, mm -hmm. and it tends to be about people, usually women, young women, who have intense mystical experiences that are really not communicable in words. Mm -hmm. And so the book, the thrust of the book is trying to convey those experiences. Um, one of her books, The Passion According to G.H., um, is about a sculptor who squishes a cockroach and then has, it sounds very strange, but this segues into her having a, a mystical experience. It's almost like a mystical crisis in a way. And it seems that it's very hard to understand. I, I always, I've, most of her books I'll read a couple of times and still feel like I don't quite get them. Um, in that book, it seems that the, the mystical crisis seems to revolve around the fact that she realizes that if God is in all things, then God is just as much present in the cockroach as it is in her, which means not just present, but like the, the completely alien mind and alien experience of the cockroach is the mind of God as much as like her own thoughts mm -hmm. for the mind of God. So. It's at once, I guess, um, having a direct communion with the unknown while not understanding the unknown at all, I think is what she's getting at. And yet it's compelling enough that you keep returning to it, even it's, though you don't quite grasp it all. Even though I don't quite grasp it, yeah. And her language, I mean, I, I read her in translation, but her language is very... Um, lots of images that I, I won't be able to think of any off the top of my head, but she has lots of images that seem to come almost out of nowhere. Like you wouldn't think of describing something that way. She often describes um, women in particular, for some reason, as um, sort of being like horses. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah, but again, it's not like a physical thing. It's sort of like the energy of a, of a wild horse, um, untamed, or if they are tamed, they want to break free and jump over that gate. Um, I see. Run free in the fields. Um, yeah. 
Then you also mentioned Colette. Colette, who I think is not so much an influence on my writing, but has been a huge influence on me. Um, my views of femininity. Colette was an unabashed uh, supporter of the feminine as uh, being something that's aesthetically worthwhile. Do you have anything you'd recommend? Oh, um, I really like Colette's shorter works. Her short stories are real interesting. She wrote also this sort of genre of, I guess you could call them creative nonfiction, actually, of um, those little essays or reflections or descriptions of the world of fashion, but also um, memories of her mother um, and memories of growing up in rural France because besides being very interested in theater and fat, the world of fashion and that kind of stuff, she's also highly attuned to nature. So she does, she wrote lots of really beautiful nature writing. So, you know, she could write about a flower and it's like fascinating. Sounds lovely. Yeah. So are you open to sharing a bit about your trans journey and how that influenced your writing? I am, yeah. So yeah, I've been, transitioning only for a couple of years now and I'm in my I came to it late because I'm in my 50s so I spent I spent many decades um, hiding really from myself as well as from the rest of the world but I knew I mean I always knew that something was up uh, with me <laughs> gender wise um I remember in my 20s uh you know, experimenting with clothing and makeup. And it was kind of all under the guise of being goth, quote unquote, because that mm -hmm. was the late 80s was semi-acceptable, except my version of goth kept getting more and more femme. And then it was interesting that people would be like, that's a little too much, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> like the black skirt we could handle, but the red lipstick, we're like, we're not so sure. Uh, talk to Robert Smith. Exactly. I know. I know. But then I went into the world of work um, at that time. Oh. <laughs> you can't have an office job and wear this. I know. I just, I pushed all that inside myself. And I didn't really understand. I didn't, I didn't connect it exactly with being trans. I had weird ideas about what it meant to be trans because I didn't have any. Was it really a phrase that was used so freely back then? Well, okay. So I remember watching the documentary Paris is Burning, which I think came out, I want to say early 90s. So I knew about that. And I remember watching the film and being like, oh my gosh, this is so inspiring. These women like who are being who they want to be. Yes. And I remember seeing it with somebody who there's sad parts of that movie too. And after the after the film, we turned to each other and and my friend was like, Oh, it's so tragic. And I had been about to say, it's so inspiring. <laughs> and yes. I was like, yes. Both are probably true. And both are true. <laughs> They're both accurate. Um but that focused on trans women who who came out of the gay male community. And I think we're mostly straight trans women. Mm -hmm. And I think I had, I just gave me sort of as, as inspired as I was, but I didn't connect it to myself. Looking back, I totally do. I'm like, well, <laughs> that's why I was inspired by it, clearly. But I just, it was well, fear or not knowing or ignorance or whatever it was. Um, took me a long time to figure it out. And then I look back and I'm like, oh, that's why puberty was um, terrible, <laughs> sort of beyond all bounds. Um, like, you know, 
know, nobody's, I don't think anybody's like, puberty's fun, but, <laughs> right. but for me, for me, puberty was the start of me, like, really kind of, like, hating myself, actually. Um, and it took, it's taken me a long time to get over that. Um, well, I'm glad you are but, over it. Yeah, well, I think I'm still working on it. I'm in therapy. Um, Nothing um, wrong with that. Yeah, right. You're right. on your way. I'm in much, much, much better mental state than I used to be. Um, I stopped drinking. I used to drink pretty much every night, and I was never a good social drinker. I was always, I was always a um, drinking is to get directly to the point of being drunk enough that I don't remember who I am, kind of thing. That was Ooh. not reality. Yeah, I mean, I didn't always drink super heavily, but I always needed a beer or two when I came home. It was like. Um, or five. You know, Sounds it like it's more of that distance that you've been referencing. It's it was, yeah. the mask that putting space between your real self and what you were sharing with the world. Exactly. After four or five beers, then I could sort of forget that I was me and then I felt okay. Um, but that's no way to sort of function through life. Nothing against alcohol in general, but like for me, um, it was not a way to, to go through life. And and after I transitioned, I just stopped drinking. I was like, well, done with that. And I haven't and anything to drink since. So, yeah, so I'm in a much better mental place, which as it relates to writing is, um, I've noticed it's opened up my writing quite a lot because I think I'm not as scared to inhabit myself. Mm -hmm. So I can write much more um, authentically, I think. Sometimes about my trans journey, but not always. Um, right, because you're made up of all different facets. It's yeah. not always going to be that one thing. I used to, so here's a sort of funny thing. I used to notice when I would write fiction that um, I would often write from a first person point of view of a woman. And then I always felt like I probably shouldn't do that. I'm a dude. That's what I thought. <laughs> and then, but then when I would try to write from a male perspective, it just didn't work. And when I tried that, there would always some female character would sneak into the narrative and become more and more interesting to me. And then I'd be like, why am I? Um, but now, so now I can just write as myself. And Anne Rice wrote from a male perspective. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with any of that. Um, right. But you were, but the fact that you were having issues with it, that did yeah. speak to something. Yeah. And my relationship with masculinity was super troubled because of that. Like mm -hmm. it just in my personal life, I've noticed now I'm much more comfortable in groups of men than I used to be because I, I can be like... I'm a lady in a group of men as of where, as opposed to trying to be like, I should fit into this. And I don't. Yeah. Like, I can see that. I see. I would love to read a story like that okay. because that's such an interesting perspective that I felt out of place when they considered me one of them. And now I feel more comfortable now that I am comfortable with myself. Right. Yeah. 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 So that's, and I think in a similar way, like with my writing, I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't feel comfortable with the me who was trying to write. So it was always a little hard. Um, what about musical influences? Yeah. Um, this I was thinking about this um, earlier this year because I, I was taking a writing workshop and um, like writing practices came up. And I think, I think it came up in my mind because somebody did a writing practice that involved breathing. And I thought that was very interesting and like writing to the rhythm of breath. Ooh. Um, I thought that was super interesting, and it made me realize I, I actually do often have music on when I'm writing, um, which I think can influence the rhythms and the cadences of what I'm writing. Um, 
And I like all different kinds of music, but when I'm writing in particular, I tend to like to listen to stuff that either is very droney or very kind of like noise music or guitar, like staticky bass type music. It's hard to explain. So <laughs> any particular like, groups or bands? Yeah, so things like Sonic Youth, maybe, or things like um, uh, certain, sometimes in jazz, like Alice Coltrane, anything that kind of has like a, a drone behind it. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, there's a yeah. I'm trying to think of other stuff, but um, Cocteau Twins or um, there's a band called Bale of Bale of the Seven Bells. I might be butchering. I don't know them. Yeah, Bale of Seven Bells. Yeah, BSP. Um, they're sort of a little bit Cocteau Twinish, but the stuff that's sort of um, kind of shoegazy, I guess. Mm -hmm. Preferably where the lyrics aren't actually understandable, so that it doesn't that does. Interface. That doesn't influence you. You're just focused on the music and the process and not the words. Yeah, but this is sort of this idea of like drone and repetition and uh, yeah, writing to a writing to a uh, 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 a rhythm in time versus writing to a linear progression. It's interesting. Well, what are some of your writing goals? Ooh, um, one, I, I'm at the point in my writing now where one of my goals is to, is to get published. Um, and I very recently had a piece that was published in the literary journal called Mulberry Literary. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, so that was my first sort of real um, uh, byline, not, not counting um, like some college stuff. But, um, so that was very exciting. So that's and that, a good feeling. That was that was great. And, and then I feel like, okay, if I did it once, it's probably repeatable. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, so that's one goal. Um, and I think just to continue to sort of push as deeply as I can into my writing. Yeah. You know, we never really discussed if you're writing novels or poetry or articles or essays. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I would consider them fiction. I've started sort of thinking of them more as like, are they closer to poetry sometimes? And what's but the length? Um, anywhere from, like for me, 5,000 words is quite long. 2,000 words, 1,000 words. I have some that are like 800 words. Um, so flash to short fiction. That's, your, to that's short your sweet fiction. spot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think I'm very much about like, maximum concentration of of what's in each word mm -hmm. or something. I think maybe that demands a certain amount of the reader, but that's okay because they're short. Um I think but, <laughs> um sometimes I'll write something that'll be like six or seven thousand words, but by the time I'm done with it, it's only a couple thousand words. Cause... Yeah. Because you just you let it out and then you mm -hmm. cut it back. And yeah. I get that. Yeah. yeah. So because I'm the host of Active Activism, I do have to ask, what are some of the charities and causes you support? Oh, right. Well, um, I mean, I don't have to ask, but I choose to. I'm glad that <laughs> you do. Oh, but I didn't prepare for this question. I, so I have, um, of, of the disposable income I have, I have a certain amount earmarked every month to different organizations. And I've got it. I mean, I donate some to... Um, you know, like the local food bank and that kind mm -hmm. of, um, but then which is very of, important. Yeah. Um 
And I think I remember reading that like they'd rather have cash if they can because then they can spend it on you know dry goods as opposed to I don't know. Anyway, it's easy. the old stuff that people don't want to eat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or maybe I'm just lazy. I don't know. But yeah, so that kind of thing. But then in terms of political, I pretty much earmark it half half between um, abortion access funds and trans legal rights. Two causes. Yeah, and yeah. they're both on par with the femon collective. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like that is I'm, funny because Rhea is obsessed with making sure people are fed. So, okay. <laughs> and in in a wonderful way, this is important to her. So you just you just named off three causes that are important to the oh, people nice. putting on this show. Yeah. So there's it's not a test. I'm giving you an opportunity to share these causes so that we yeah. can help promote them a little bit. Yeah, no, I was just like, now I'm not gonna be able to think of actual names of organizations. But um, I know for abortion rights, I mean, I donate to like Planned Parenthood and NARAL, um, But then there's some of these funds that are more like, and I forget what they are. But like, there's one in Texas, that's like, literally like getting people money to drive to a clinic, you know, as access gets harder and harder. Mm -hmm. um, and then yeah, and then like, the transgender, there's a bunch of legal funds. I feel like we're fighting the good fight. Yeah. So what's next for you? Ooh. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe doing more readings. The one that we did together. Yes. So it's interesting, actually. I don't know if this is a coincidence, but the piece that got accepted for publication is a slightly longer version of the piece that I read at that reading. And I suspect that um, for me, like practicing mm -hmm. ahead of time and, and rehearsing for the reading along the way I end up tweaking like I didn't do any major revisions but I ended up tweaking a word here and a word there and I, I wonder if that kind of tipped it from being like pretty good to being like really good or something because that and is the piece I'm that banking that it did because mm -hmm. I have a mentor Gregory Compass and he advocates that you should read your work aloud you should read it aloud and then you're going to hear it differently and it's going to help you to recognize those tricky points where that doesn't sound good when you say it outside of your head hundred <laughs> percent you know? and i had always i think heard that advice and, and completely ignored it but for this reading i had to do it um and that is so like i should say reading in public is so outside my comfort zone well, you did great. Well, thank you. But I was I was definitely panicking the first page of that reading. But I feel like if I did it more, I'd get more comfortable. So I did notice that you disappeared almost immediately after the event before we had an opportunity oh. to take a group photo. Um, partly because I was a friend, a very good friend of mine um, was nice enough to come to the reading, but she had to get home. She had a kid. So I was like, I'll drive you home. She didn't have a ride. She was going to walk to like us and I was like, oh no. Yeah, that was actually my <laughs> well, next time stay for the photo and then get out. Yeah. This way you have photo evidence of your amazing event. Oh, I know, right? But yes, you're right though. I do tend to be like, okay, there's enough of people looking at me by <laughs> <laughs> Well, I do want to thank you very much for sharing your creative journey with us. Well, what are the best ways that listeners can support you in your work? Oh. Um, I don't know. I have a, I have a, um, an Instagram. Mm -hmm. It's, um, is it Veronica.Wasson? Hopefully you can put it in the description. I will. Yeah. Um, and then where can we find the piece that was published? Yeah. So it's an online journal called Mulberry Literary. Okay. And, 
It's their most recent issue. What's the name of the piece? Issue six, I believe. It's called Six Portraits. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you again. And thank you everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, comment, and subscribe. This has been Fem on Creative as part of the Fem on Collective.